0: Imagine with me that there's a TV show. It's about three siblings, one's adopted. Did y'all get that? No? Okay, all right. And imagine you jump into that show at the end of season two, um, maybe after the Olympics are over, I don't know, uh, and, uh, and you don't know that the three main characters are siblings. If you don't know that the three main characters are siblings, that you're missing a key part of the story um, that unites the story. And the story is going to become three random, disconnected stories that have a few touch points along the way, but it's not one cohesive, united story. There are some passages in the Bible so central to our understanding of the Bible that without them, we're missing a piece of what unites the story. And the story story of the Bible is going to become random, disconnected stories that have a few touch points along the way, but it's not one cohesive, united story. Second Samuel 7 is one of those passages, one of those passages that unites the story, one of those passages that when you read it, it's meant to be like the wind of a tornado just lifting you off the ground thrusting you up into the air. It's not, it's not one that just drops right in your lap. It lifts you up in the air. And like the wind of a tornado, eventually it sets you down. And so what I want to do today is I want to take all the limitations I have as a teacher and ask God to take Second Samuel 7 and like the wind of a tornado, just lift us up into the air. And when it sets us down, I'm going to ask it to set us down inside of our neighborhood parish. If you're new to sojourn, Um, That's what we call these groups of men, women, and children who just live life together. And see if when it sets us down inside our parish, it it might not give a bit of substance to who we are and what we're trying to do. Sound good? It doesn't matter. We're doing it. (laughs) Verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, a little, a little back story to what's going on right here. The, the ark of God, this is um, the symbol, the, the most important symbol of the relationship between God and his people. Uh, and... One chapter before David, King David had just taken the ark and delivered it back into Jerusalem. And now David is sitting around and he's going, man, look at my house. Like, look at what I live in, this palace that I'm living in and look at what um, the ark is in. Like, I have a palace, God has a tent, that's not right. It's not right. Surely it's not right. I have a palace, God has a tent, Um, it's not right. And Nathan uh, gets and understands that David's plan, I'm going to build a temple. I'm going to build a house. And now God responds. And in God's response, we're going to learn two things about the heart of God. Two things that without which you simply cannot understand God. Let's keep reading. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Okay. So Israel... At one point was uh, they were in captivity in Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt. And then God comes and through a series of events leads them out of captivity. But then they spend decades just roaming, just roaming, floating, basically homeless, wilderness spot to wilderness spot to wilderness spot. And you know what went with them? The tent. And here's what God is saying. Hey, did, did I at any point... At any point, did I did I ask for anything else? Like, did I did I at any point go, "Hey, you, you know what? You know what I want? Stop this. We're going to stop this floating. Build me a house." Did I ever say, "Hey, stop this. I want a house"? No. Here's what God is saying: I, I went in every spot along the way. I dwelled with my people, Israel. That from Egypt to today, I have been with my people. I've been with my people so here's the the first thing that we learn about God in God's response that God has an incarnational heart incarnating to be with his people you see one of the uh, one of the core doctrines of Christianity is this it's what we call Jesus incarnation where Jesus came from heaven to earth left presence of uh, of the Father and spirit to come and be among us to dwell with us that That God with us. That's what Jesus is. And while Jesus' incarnation was a new event, incarnation was not new to the heart of God. With my people sat at the core of the heart of who God has always been. That's the first thing. The second thing we learn, verse 8. Now, therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from dwelling, uh, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Pause there. Here's the second thing he's saying to David. Hey, listen. Hey, Hey, David. I took you from being shepherd of prince over Israel. I am the one who went out before your enemies and defeated them. I did for you. I did for you. I did for you. See, David, here's the thing, man. David, you're you're, you're missing it. You're missing something fundamental. It's not you do for me. It's I do for you. And this is where we see the second snapshot in the heart of God in his response. That at the heart of God, the second thing we see and learn about his heart is that grace defines his heart. That grace, I do for you. I do for you. Hey, you undeserving, rebellious Israelites, I do for you. I do for you. You undeserving, rebellious Israelites, I do for you. you see, grace is not a New Testament idea. You see, one of the things that can happen to us is um, when we don't have a cohesive story, when we, when we don't understand how the Bible weaves together and fits together as one story, we, we end up disconnecting Old and New Testament. And so we've got like, you know, angry God of the old and gracious, loving God of the new. Um, but when we know that it's one story, we we're able to see that it wasn't um, God looking down and going, you know what, man, I just don't know why they don't get it. Like they are just, I'm, I just, I'm so angry with them. You know what? I tell you what. Jesus, we ought to have some grace. Let's create some grace right now by you going. That's not how it went. Grace has eternally sat at the heart of God. It's woven into his heart. It's innate to his eternal heart. And this is, where, this is where the way God is described in 2 Samuel 7 ran completely counter to anything that the ancient people would have thought of God as. So if you read anything about ancient gods, how they thought of God, it was always this, distant, demanding. Never near, never gracious. Distant, demanding, which is not uh, untrue of modern gods, is it, right? If we were to analyze uh, world religions, here's what we're going to find um, uh, outside of Christianity. Um, we're we're going to find that we think of God as distant and demanding. Pick the religion, God is going to be distant and demanding. It's going to be a set of things we have got to always do to appease God. He's not with me. He's not near to me. I've got to do and do and do to appease and appease and appease. I've got to always appease God, but it's not just religions, right? John Calvin, uh, John Calvin, who uh, pretty well known pastor theologian back in the day, uh, he's got this famous quote where he said, "The human heart, it's an idol factory. It's an idol factory." Here's what he's saying: You know what we just instinctively, innately do? We create gods. We create something that we're going to hold up and worship because we think it's going to give us life and meaning and hope and purpose, right? Carving images back in the day, but today uh, we're, we're not so much carving things out that we worship, but today it's a lot more like job, family, you fill in your blank, right? But here's what's going to happen, and, and here's, how, here's some evidence that we're creating a God out of something. You, you, you let family, you let career be the God of your life. You, you let your fill in the blank be the God of your life when it's a substitute God, not the creator, sustainer, lover uh, of your soul. Uh, you, you let one of those uh, be your God. And when you fail, right, when you're not the mom that you think you ought to be, right, when you're not the employee that you think you ought to be, like when you, uh, when you get passed over for the promotion that you really think I deserved, or when you get ranked in the bottom third, not the top third, or when your when when raise is two and not four percent, or four and eight percent, or when you get let go from your job and you've got the person with the courage to look at you and say, you just weren't good enough. You, you create a God, and then you fail in the pursuit of that God, and watch how little grace you have for yourself. I mean, just wait till that day gets here, and watch how little grace you're going to have for yourself. One, one way to know am I creating a God out of something is when you fail, or when it fails at you, do you have any grace for yourself in the middle of it? First thing we learn about the heart of God is that it's incarnational to be with my people. And the second thing is that His grace is sat at the eternal heart of God. But now He turns to a series of promises. What, um, what, what? Uh, a series of in the eight come through in English in the Hebrew. There's ten I will statements. Ten I will this. I will this. I will this. Promises from uh, God. Some starting in David's lifetime. Some moving beyond. Um, David's lifetime. And what I want to do is I want to, I just want to move my way through them and then I'm going to summarize them at the end um, because I'm doing this with limited time. We have another sermon that we preached a couple of years ago uh, that goes through in, in more detail. It was a really well done sermon, not by me. I'm not complimenting my own sermons. That um, <laughs> you can go back and, uh, and find on our podcast, but let's jump in. Verse nine, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed by, uh, and be disturbed no more. And violent men, violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. So he's coming to David, and he's saying, Hey, David, listen, you, you've been on the run long enough. Man, I'm going to give you a name and a place and a and peace and a rest. And this is echoing back. It's echoing back to promises God made to a man named Abraham. Where in Genesis, God came to Abraham and said, Hey, listen, I'm, I'm going I'm to give you a great name. I'm going to make your name Great, it's it's not disconnected, right? David and Abraham, not disconnected stories. This is the continuation, fruition of that story. Keep going. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. See, here, here's God's counter-offer to David. What, what was David's offer? Hey, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to build you a house, man. Like, you need a home. You're not going be homeless anymore. I'm taking my own hands. I'm going to build you a house. And God is coming along going, David, that, you're so cute, man. I mean, you're just, you're so cute. But I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. You're not building me a house, David. I'm going to build you a house. But here's the, here, here's the deal. David already has a house, right? That, that, that's David's problem. David's problem. I've got a beautiful mansion of a house, and God has a tent. David's already got a house. So what's he talking about? Great question. Let's keep reading. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. See, the house that God is going to build for David moves well beyond the life of David. And the house that he's going to build for David is going to be this dynasty, a lineage, an offspring. It's not simply going to have cedar. It's going to have a family and a name. It's going to be a dynasty. But who is the offspring? Right? Is it Solomon? Is it, is it David's boy who's going to build an actual temple? Is that what it's talking about? Is it talking about Solomon? Is it talking about someone else? Let's keep reading and find out. and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so if I could summarize this, here's what I would say. God is coming to David and saying, hey, David, listen, I'm going to give you an eternal home with an eternal family where my steadfast love is experienced eternally. I'm getting... So this dynasty is going to be, this is what's going to come through your offspring, eternal home, eternal family, where my steadfast love is experienced eternally, and it's going to last forever. No more wandering, no more homeless. It's going to last forever. It's where my kingdom is going to rule and reign, but here's a problem. We have a problem in our text. And if you were a Jewish boy or girl back in the fourth century, if we're sitting around, it's the way we said it last week, that if we're if we're sitting around, we're a Jewish boy or girl, fourth century, um, and we're we're in our community, and all of a sudden we finally get our written scroll with Samuel, and it shows up, and we open it up, and we run off. It's our turn to read it. We go to the local reading tree, and we sit under the shade. We're reading through. We're just flying through, fascinated with the story. When we hit this right here, we would say, that's not true. That's not true. We would go objectively, it's not true, right? Because Solomon, this boy, he built a temple. There was a throne. It was established, but it's not there anymore. And yeah, we, we, we maybe have built a temple again, but listen, our life doesn't look anything like what's described. They're planted. We're not planted. We don't have an eternal home. We're not experiencing family and the steadfast love of God. Our life today, with our city in ruins, doesn't look like steadfast love. This appears to be objectively not true. It appeared to be untrue. Until. Until one day, one day Jesus would leave his home with a father. He would come from heaven to earth to create a new family where the steadfast love of God would be eternally experienced, where he would be the fullest expression of God's incarnational heart, and he would be the definition of God's Grace. And you know how the book of Matthew opens up where Jesus comes. You know the first words? Son of Abraham, son of David. You don't know where Second Samuel 7 finds its fulfillment. It finds it in Jesus who on the cross. You see, if we go back to Samuel 7, it was when he commits iniquity. I'm, the thing is that Jesus didn't commit iniquity. There was no sin in his life, but on the cross, he became your iniquity, he became mine. And he died at the hands of men with rods. but three days later, he was resurrected from the grave where God would establish his eternal kingdom. And if we read the Gospels, we follow Jesus' life, you you know how many times the word kingdom is used in um, the four Gospels which draw out and describe the teachings and life of Jesus? You know how many times kingdom is talked about? You know how many times the word is used? I'll, I'll tell you, 126 a hundred and twenty-six. Jesus opening up, going, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. It's at hand. Repent. A hundred and twenty-six times Jesus takes the second Samuel kingdom of God and says, it's here. It's here. And then we keep going in the New Testament. This is what we're going to find, we're going to find out what the kingdom is and where the kingdom has lived and experienced. And if we wanted a, a verse that's going to zero us in and target us and tell us explicitly what it is, we would go to Revelation 1 verse 5 where it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom. I'll read it again. And has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You want to know what makes the kingdom the kingdom? It's where the king reigns. And where does the king reign? He reigns in the church. You, you want to live out Second Samuel 7. You live it out inside the church. That The church is meant to be and is that home where we experience family and we know the steadfast love of God. The church is the kingdom made visible. And so it's time, it's time for our tornado to set us down, to drop us back down to the ground and drop us inside what we call a neighborhood parish, a smaller group of men, women, and children who meet together weekly and live life together, ordinary, everyday life as the church. Because our parishes are lived expressions of the kingdom. That's what our parishes are. Lived expressions of the kingdom of God. It's why the Bible is studied, but they're not a Bible study. It's why community is formed, but it's not a community group. They're a living embodiment of 2 Samuel 7, living as a reflection of God's incarnational heart where we can come and experience and find the grace of God. That's where you and I get to live on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Sunday evenings, the God with us. That's where we get to live God with us. So you and I, people in this room, who live our life not in a one-time need of the grace of God, but in need of constant reminders of the grace of God in our life, that we, uh, we, you and I, Functionally prone to forget the love of God for us. Like if I said, raise your hand in this room if you if you just don't ever forget the love of God, not just for us but for you. If you just said, man, I just I just don't wrestle with that. Like I just I just don't. Like I don't really need the grace and love. I don't I don't battle with that. Like if I said that, I'm I'm, I'm assuming nobody in here would be would raise their hand. You and I prone to forget we need the church to come around and be that home, that family, where we're reminded on a regular basis, day in and day out, of our need for God's grace and the fact that God is smiling on us. That in Christ, he's smiling on you. But here's the thing, parishes aren't just for us. Parishes are also for our neighbors. That's why they're reflections of God's incarnational heart as they incarnate into the everyday, ordinary life of our neighbors, so that our neighbors might step in uh, to our parishes, not necessarily just on a Wednesday night or a Sunday night, but over a meal on a Friday night at a restaurant, preferably on a We're on a Saturday morning family coffee run. For they would step in and see God's grace, love on display—the love that they live their life in desperate need of, the love that you live your life on desperate need of—to come and experience God's grace. And so, what's what's the action plan, Brandon? Like, what what do we do with this? Well, let me um, let, let me let me try to just give two. I mean, we probably could do hundreds, but I'm going to give two. Uh, one, one. Extend the grace of God found in God's kingdom to someone that you don't want to. Like, listen, um, uh, when people hurt us, when they're wrong, so when they attack, when they, you know, uppercut over whatever, uh, it, it, and we need to extend God's grace to somebody else. When we, when we like that person, right, when we want to, it's easy. But but who in here doesn't know what it's like to have to, to need to extend grace to somebody they don't want to extend grace to? No, am I the only one? Sorry, that was awkward and I'm uncomfortable now. <laughs> extend the grace of God to somebody that you don't want to. Second, our neighborhood perishes. Here you go. Throw a block party. Throw a block party. Invite all your neighbors to come and party and have a good time and grill and uh, you, you know, uh, have become friends with them. Make friends with your neighbors. Make friends with your neighbors. So in your friendship with your neighbors, they might, might be drawn in. That you might build a relationship with them. And then you might draw them and expose them to the Christian community or life inside the kingdom, if you will. And, and then maybe in word and deed, we might declare the gospel of the kingdom to them. So a black party. Because let me tell you what else parishes are. They're, they're a, a living foretaste of the day that is to come when God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell with my people. At the end of the story, Revelation 20, 21, 22, God says, I'm going to be with you. Our parishes are living foretaste, foretaste, foretaste on Tuesday of the day that is to come. And do you know how the Bible ends? You know how the Bible ends? Five verses to go in the Bible. I mean, it's about to get wrapped up. You've read from the beginning to the end. It's been a long afternoon. You've made it to the end. You've got five verses to go. And you know what it says about Jesus? You know what it calls him? Descendant of David. Descendant of David. That the new heavens, new earth, life to come. The fullest, true, and pure expression of the kingdom of God. Where God reigns in every heart and across everything every inch of this earth, descendant of David. We are, the church is, and our parishes are meant to be living expressions and foretaste of that day. God's incarnational heart extending his grace to the world. They might see and come to love the same God that we do. That's what we are. That's what our parishes are meant to be. Nothing more nothing less. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the chance to take a few minutes and open up Second Samuel 7. The, the chance to see how your story, your redemptive story that you've made known in the Scriptures, weaves it together as you have come, and you're establishing your kingdom. And there are so so many angles that we didn't talk through today. Lord, would you um, take the few words that we did, and would you apply them to our hearts that you might reign in our hearts more and more, little by little, day by day, week by week, until the day when we are ready to come and be in your presence. We ask for that, and we ask for it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.